All right, chapter 7, uh, discipline of devotion. You didn't always put the word discipline together with the word devotion, but the theme throughout the book, as we've noticed, is that everything takes work, or discipline is advantageous. So the discipline of devotion. I'll start with Psalm 146, verses 1 to 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And we, you could read down through the rest of Psalm 46 and see that it has various categories of things within the psalm. Singing, praise from our souls, prisoners set free, blind eyes opened, the bowed down people lifted up, the righteous being loved by God. All those sorts of things are devotional. They're the things that if we were to read that to start your day, it would put you in the mindset of our relationship to God, including singing. You could say to yourself, I will sing. And we sing together as a corporate body, but you could also, if you choose to, sing individually in your devotion time with God. And then Romans 12.1 for a New Testament uh, contact point is Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So spiritual worship is presenting ourselves to God spiritually and even on the Lord's Day to present ourselves to God together as a corporate body. So one aspect, of course, of devotion is prayer. Um, I don't find there's anything more convicting than talking to Christians about your prayer life. It's never as strong as it could be, right? So reasons to pray is how we start. Um, This chapter talked about the impact on your character of prayer. Uh, That there is exposure to Christ, who are you speaking to? The righteous one. And it burns his image into us as we speak to him. His love, his compassion, his truth, his integrity, his humility. Um, Secondly, because the impact on your will. And we'll talk more about our will when we get to the doctrinal section today. The will is the decision-making center of who you are. Your will. Um, And the the question here as we approach God in prayer and our devotions is, when you're in a boat, do you pull the shore to yourself or yourself to the shore? Uh, Prayer bends our will to God's will because we would pull our boat towards the shore. Um, When I was at snow camp with the youth a few years back, they had a whole round of jokes um, um, going around that so-and-so doesn't do push-ups. He pushes the world down. <laughs> Things like that. Kids love that sort of uh, massive uh, humor. And uh, the idea here fits, actually, in a more serious nature, that prayer is not telling God what we want. Prayer is changing what we want to line up with what God wants. So, uh, reasons to pray. Um, then, avoiding misunderstanding in prayer is something he covered in this chapter as well that prayer cannot be reduced to simple rules. There are tools and hints and helps and reminders, and I encourage using those, but it's not rules, and it's not simply reduced to those. Like, for example, the ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. I think that's nice. I think it's helpful. But you don't reduce prayer to simply, I'm going to go through my ACTS, and I'm done. Uh, It's a relationship with the living God, our Creator and Redeemer. So it can't be reduced 
and it doesn't have a prescribed order. That if you follow this order, you're doing it right, and if you don't follow the order, you're doing it wrong. That's not prayer at all. You think how fluid it is. It's like the conversation that you have with your brother or your sister. Um, If there's a crisis, you say, how can I help you? I'm coming right over. Um, If it's simply, I'm heading to the store, can I pick something up for you? It can be simply a list of things you're saying, like bullet points. If you have a sit-down conversation on a serious topic, it takes a completely different nature. The various ways in which our conversation with a sibling happen is a good illustration of the various ways that our conversations with God can happen, that we are um, free to have various ways to talk to God, not a prescribed order. In other words, the Lord's Prayer. Right? The Lord's Prayer is instructive. The Lord's Prayer is helpful. It's very... Um, uh, didactic, it teaches us a lot, but it's not restrictive. It's not meant to say you have to pray along the order of the Lord's Prayer or else you're not doing it right. Not, not, not that at all. The Psalms, for example, they're filled with all sorts of samples and examples of how to pray. So uh, we wanted to cover now the topic of meditation in prayer. Now, we don't have to be afraid of the word meditation just because some people use it in the, the sense of transcendental meditation. Um, sure, the... Um, the idea of meditation involves two-way communication in prayer. It's not just saying things to God, exalting him and making requests, but it's also listening. Meditation is getting the idea in prayer that we need to hear, that, that conversations are two ways, and similarly, we, need, we want prayer to be two ways. Psalm 40, verse 6 says this. I love this phrase. Ears you have dug for me. That's a freer translation, but the, the original word there in Hebrew, it's like drilling. It's like digging. I'm, I'm a blockhead, and I don't listen, and so I need God to drill a hole into me, dig holes into my head so that I have the ability to listen or to hear. I just love that because it, it reflects where we are, the need to listen to God. And then prayer can also include muttering. Um, Psalm, or Deuteronomy 32, verse 46 The words of God are your life. So if they're our life, then we can be repeating them, going over them, uh, murmuring, memorizing, chattering them. Did you ever um, see somebody walking the other way past you and they're saying something and they don't have a grandchild with them that's behind them and couldn't see? They're not on the phone. They don't have an earpiece. There's nobody around. It looks like they're talking to themselves. Could it be that they're praying? Um, to, to mutter or to chatter over something, or they're simply trying to remember their grocery list because they didn't have a pen and paper. We can do the sort of tricks and um, tools that we use for everyday life as a part of our prayer life, chattering, memorizing. If you're super stressed out, you're heading in for a job interview, and you tell yourself, God is in control, it's going to be all right. God is in control, it's going to be all right. You're coaching yourself. It's a form of praying um, and asking God's help for your interview. So then there's confession and prayer. We have spontaneous confession. If, if a sin comes into your awareness, of course, you bring that to God and repent of it. But there's also systematic confession. You could start out with the idea that I know there's sin somewhere. I'm just not sure where it is and work through a full list of systematic categories looking for the category of sin in your life. And then you can confess that specifically. Then there's adoration and prayer. Um, adoration being the idea that God is high and holy and we are to revere him. 
to exalt him, to show respect, reverence. And uh, he describes in this chapter how we live in a flip-the-channel culture. Um, it could be the president of the United States. It could be the governor of the state. It, it could be the most important person you could think of, and yet we'll just flip right past him. <laughs> and so we're talking to God, and then we answer the phone, and then we're talking to God again. And this does not help us with the reverence dynamic. We have to think about the God to whom we're speaking and show reverence. And then there's the idea of contemplation in prayer, uh, to dig into Scripture and to not just read through it, next chapter, read through it, next chapter, but sometimes sit and contemplate that, to think it over, um, to think about it in terms of general revelation that we live in and how the Scriptures uh, interpret general revelation for us. Worship, uh, personal worship and devotion can include reading, praying, singing God's words back to him, and then also presenting yourself to God. And Lord, I'm your servant. How would, I think I know what my day looks like, but how would you like it to go redirect me? So Psalm 1, verse 2, his delight. I'm trying to stay on target here. His, Psalm 1, 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So their scripture even tells us to go ahead and meditate. So um, one study you could do, as he suggests in this chapter, is go through the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, make note of the times when it's repeated, to he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and notice the times that it says that and what the lesson is for each of those times. So another way um, that we identify with God and, and with his servants in Scripture in prayer is going to scriptures like Isaiah 6, verse 5, where Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, uh, the Lord of hosts. So reflecting on what does it do that we are in front of a holy, holy, holy God, and we're not. Um, It evokes confession from us, uh, Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Is that scary to you, that the Lord would not have listened to our prayer? We're so used to thinking, oh yeah, God hears prayer, God answers prayer. Have you not seen a plaque that says God answers prayer? But if we cherish sin in our heart, we're told God won't listen. That's kind of a, a, a stark, jolting thing to think of. But then we're consoled by another verse, such as Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. So if, if we um, fear that we might be harboring sin in our heart, God not hearing us, we can bring that to him in prayer. So that uh, moves us right into our next section, Disciplines of Godly Man, book chapter 8, The Discipline of Prayer. We've already touched on, of course, on the topic of devotion, but now prayer specifically. Uh, I want to bring out five points that he brought out in the chapter from a verse, and the verse is Ephesians 6.18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So first, it's the idea in the context of Ephesians 6, of warfare. You might remember, spiritual warfare chapter. And it's appropriate for the discipline of prayer to think of it as war. To think about our own victories and defeats 
regarding prayer, regarding our walk with God, our walk in holiness. And so we're at war. It's helpful to keep that uh, idea in mind. Um, in the, uh, the, the uh, what's it called, the, where we have Frodo with the ring, that series of books. Yeah, Lord of the Rings series. When Frodo puts on the ring, he can all of a sudden see these things that were invisible going on. I think for a Christian, that is a picture of the, the reality of spiritual things around us that are going on that we cannot see. And prayer is, in a sense, asking God to show us or make us more aware or just accepting the fact that uh, there is a war going on even if we're not visibly able to see it. And just um, I, having the idea of war is an important structure to our spiritual walk. So prayer includes petition. What is petition? It's offering our request to God. Um, the scriptural setting for prayer is a soldier preparing for battle. So in this passage, Ephesians 6.18, there's five elements that Paul brings out. Number one, in spirit. You see it there, praying at all times in the spirit. It tells us, the spirit tells us what to pray for and energizes us to prayer, helps us to focus. Secondly, it's continual. If he says, at all times, there's an ongoing nature of prayer there. Uh, adopting a posture of prayer of the heart um, to always be in a frame of mind of praying. Um, of course, you understand you don't have to close your eyes, you don't have to fold your hands, and so you pray while you're driving, actually. You know, and pray while you're doing other things. A posture of prayer, to pray at all times, to take that somewhat um, seriously means that we continually pray all day. Third category or element he brings out here is varied. When you say at all times with all prayer and supplication, he's recognizing that if you're going to be continuously in prayer, sometimes you'll be alone, sometimes you'll be with other people, sometimes you're driving, sometimes you're at work. And that varied situation calls for varied types of prayer, uh, new and different situations we encounter. Also, um, if you're praying for other people, they can be in various situations. Let's say you have three siblings, brothers or sisters. One of them uh, has such a problem with money that it's a burden every day, and they feel the weight of that, and they're tight, and it's pressure. Another sibling does not have a problem with money at all, but the job that brings them all that money is so much stress <laughs> that they barely have time to think. And a third sibling has a health problem that dominates them. So your prayers for them are going to be varied because of the situation um, of their, their lives. Fourth category is persistence in prayer. Uh, pray at all times with all prayer. And then he continues in verse 18, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. It's, it's an ongoing, persistent sort of prayer. This is given to us in a picture in Exodus 17 where Moses is told to hold up his hands in prayer. <laughs> Did you ever have a teacher in school who made you put a dictionary in the left hand and the right hand? You probably didn't misbehave as, as, as much as it would require to get this, but put a dictionary here and a dictionary here, <laughs> and that quiets down an elementary student pretty fast because you think that's easy, and especially the boys, they think they could do it all day, and in about two minutes, they're crying. Um, here Moses holds up his hands in prayer, and what happens? He's aging at this point as well, which impacts things. He is assisted in that prayer being held up by Aaron and her. 
That's a beautiful picture of us upholding one another in prayer and its persistence in prayer as we go through the um, different pieces of life. Uh, another um, passage about persistence in prayer is Luke 18, 1 through 5, where Jesus told a parable how they should pray and not lose heart. What's the parable? This woman kept coming to the unrighteous judge, though he slammed the door in her face, told her, no way, get out of here. Repeatedly, she kept coming, making her request. Finally, he says, give her what she wants. Get her out of my face. Right? This is the story. This is the, the parable. The analogy is, God is not an unrighteous judge. He's the righteous judge, and he cares for us. And how much more ready would he be to answer his people's prayer, and he will not delay long over his, our request. So persistence in prayer, God will yet answer. And then Mark 14, 38 is the place where Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The famous phrase, the spirit is willing, flesh is weak. That encourages us to be persistent in prayer. Don't stop just because you're tired or don't feel like it. Right, The flesh is weak. And then Matthew 7, 7, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. So God encourages persistent prayer. And the fifth category from our verse, Ephesians 6.18, and the fifth time, the fifth one is intercessory prayer. Because we're specifically told supplication, making supplication for all the saints. We're told to pray for other Christians. So pray for other things. Yes, um, you'll, you'll pray together with me. The various categories we usually do in, in pastoral prayer, congregational prayer, and it covers a lot of things worldwide. But we also pray for our brothers and sisters. We pray for believers. It's a large place in our corporate prayers. It's a large place in our personal prayers. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our families. We pray for people in our church and people in our nation. In our chapter, he gives us a couple of tips for the practice of prayer, uh, making a prayer list. Of course, that's not new to you. Having a quiet time. Having a place and a set time, like an appointment. Having a posture whether it be laying down, standing up, walking, um, pacing back and forth, or uh, sitting, but not in a relaxed sort of sleepy way, but sitting, you know, sitting up, thinking through the posture. Preparation for it, like organizing yourselves. Oh, I was going to print out that email, or I was going to make my list. Getting ready ahead of time. And then the length of your prayer, think about it. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, one of the things the Lord's Prayer teaches us is that prayer doesn't have to be long. You know, say, I'm not godly unless I spend 35 minutes in prayer. Where did you get that from? Not in the Bible. So think about the length of time. Maybe it'd be better to have 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening, than try to do 20 minutes all at once. Just thinking through the length of time is something he suggests, and we agree. And then lastly, uh, just to remind us that we're in the book called Disciplines of a Godly Man, and prayer is one of the disciplines. Prayer is hard work. You actually have to put out effort to grow in your prayer life. It's not to be done only if you like it. Hey, you want to go skiing? If you want to, go. If you don't want to, don't. Right? That's how skiing works. Bowling, same way, unless you're in a league. Right? Prayer can't be done only when we feel like it. Can't be done only in our spare time. I don't have time today. That doesn't work. Can't be done only if you're good at it. Well, I just, I'm not good at prayer. You know, there's praying kind of people, and then there's other kind of Christians, and I'm just one of the other kind of Christians. Nope, doesn't work. Um, it can't be done only... Um, when you have that strong oomph and urge and you pray for 90 minutes and the next day zero. 
Um, it's, it's better to have it measured rather than an overcommitment that you can't possibly keep. So, all right. That was chapter 8. We are moving on. We're turning over to our doctrine side now. And last time we did not cover <clears throat> chapter 9, so we'll, we'll pick up on that. Chapter 9 of the, discipline of the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. And now you can turn in your packet, because there's a page for this, in your green packet, if you go to the, the uh, I should have put page numbers on them for you, but you can find it. It's chapter 9 across the top of free will. Christ enabled me to choose the good, chapter 9 of free will. All right, what do you think of when you hear the word free will? This is a, yes, trouble, trouble right. It, this is kind of a, a controversial topic across church denominations, right? So uh, it's, I think, helpful that the Westminster Confession of Faith touches on this, even though this is nearly a 400-year-old document that shows you that it was important enough that they had to put a chapter in on it. It's always been a concern for Christians how to develop this. So I'm trying something new today. Rather than reading each paragraph and commenting on each, I thought that was a little weighty. So... Uh, given that this is an overview and highlights, I'm focused more on highlights. I'll say a couple things that are important, not necessarily read all the, all the paragraphs in this chapter today. We'll try this. So, um, chapter 9, free will. How do we define free will? As I said earlier, my definition is the decision-making center of you. Where do you go to decide uh, what am I going to do on the weekend of October, whatever? Where do you go to decide, hey, what does Thanksgiving look like for our family this year? Uh, what, do you, what do you decide about you know, your project at work? Uh, how does your retirement look? The decision-making center of ourselves. And in that sense, we have free will. So what it means and what it doesn't mean is important, and we're going to spend a bit of time on this today. So, okay. The main verse, as you see in your handout, is Philippians 2, 12 to 13. This came up actually two weeks ago, remember, in our discussion, because it flowed, the question naturally arises out of some of the topics we've covered in previous chapters. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So I want you to see the larger flow of logic here. The, the way that the chapters are put together was thought out by the, the Westminster pastors. Some people call them Westminster divines. I don't want you to get thrown off by that word. They're simply uh, pastors in um, the early 1600s who were talking about this and wrote this, wrote this chapter. I want you to see their flow of thought. If you think about chapter 7 where we talked about the, the covenant we're talking about how do you as a human being and us as human beings relate to God as the creator, God as the redeemer. That's the huge issue of our lives, the huge issue of scripture. When you think about your death, when you think about you know, a thousand years from now, that is the key issue with spiritual things, the relationship between God and humans. <clears throat> so chapter 7 talked about covenant, but there's more questions we have even though we studied chapter 7. Um, what are the purposes of God to redeem people who are sinners? So chapter 8, we, um, we covered last time the fulfillment of the covenantal relationship between God and man in the incarnation and ministry of Jesus Christ. So there's one who was God 
and still is God, but became man also. Two distinct natures and one person forever, Jesus Christ. So the, it's a central and important figure with the question of <clears throat> how God relates to man because there is the God-man. Then we turn now to chapter 9, but I want you to see how chapters 9 through 16 all flow out of this topic, that the actual application of redemption by Jesus Christ to the elect of God is now to be fleshed out, um, starting now here in chapter 9. And it's at this point that the Westminster pastors deal with the difficult question of the way in which the sovereign purposes of God in meeting man in his sin are to be viewed in relationship to the will of man. What do you want? And how did God design us the ability to want and decide things? And how did the fall impact that, changing what we want? And how does redemption change that again, changing what what we want? So it's a very important chapter in the basic structure of the whole Westminster Confessions theology, and it's foundational for the God-human relationship. So, um, section one, I'll read, that God hath endued the will of man with that natural liberty, that it is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil. So what's being covered here is that in terms of free will, you do have complete liberty to do whatever you wish. However, at the very same time, you have total inability to do what is good. So we end up doing bad because we choose to. Um, so let me try to flesh this out with some examples. So aren't you conscious of possessing the power of determining your own actions irrespective of external influences? When I, uh, let's say I invite you right now to raise your right hand. Now you're making a deliberate choice whether or not to raise your right hand just because that guy up front says he's going to use this illustration and asks the class to raise their right hand. If I start shouting, raise your hand! That may or may not impact you because you're still making a decision. Now he's being abusive, but I still decide not to raise my hand or um, whatever your thought processes are. But all the factors going into whether or not you're going to raise your hand are your will in action. If you decided to, uh, you might have chosen the opposite. If you wish to raise the left hand just to be clever, Um, whatever's happening in the room might impact you, but you possess the power of originating action. That is true. We all have recognized that. Free will. But let's talk about the temperature in this room. Mercury does not have the ability to decide whether it's going to expand at a certain rate or change that rate. That's what we use to make thermometers, right? Mercury so anytime you apply heat to this room, if there's a mercury-based thermometer, it's going to tell you the temperature. That's just a fact. That's it's how it's designed. But if we p- apply enough heat to this room, let's say it's 95 degrees now in here, you could decide to go get a glass of water. You could decide to take your coat off. You could decide to leave. I can't handle this heat, right? Um, you're a person, and a person has a will. So we make decisions before God from our own conscience. Um, If I asked you to raise your hand, a show of hands if you saw a baseball game this week and you raised your hand, but you did not attend a baseball game this week, it may offend your conscience later because you just lied. But it's your decision to raise your hand or not, what you meant by that, how you feel about that, 
Everyone else was raising their hand, and I'm not sure I heard the question exactly, but I thought we were saying something about baseball, and I like baseball. So I thought the question was, I like baseball, so I raised my hand. You, you see all the complicating factors? You were still free to raise your hand or not. You're free to understand what you understood and mean what you mean. You're free to repent later, <laughs> right? You made the decisions, and you're responsible. Your choice is determined by the sum total of your views, feelings, and tendencies at the time. And all these different factors go into it. See how complicated it becomes? That each person might have raised their hand for a different reason. Because the wife elbowed you. Because you don't want to be embarrassed. Because um, you really like baseball or whatever. Um, Or if you're a seventh grader, you could get technical. You know, they're all little lawyers. And they could say, I attended a little league game not a baseball game, so I'm not going to raise my hand. I'm going to redefine it according to what I say, right? And therefore decide not to raise their hand. Um, Your choice could be overtaken by your feelings. You're kind of grumpy or you don't like the person up front, so you're not going to participate at all. I'm I'm out of this. I'm not raising my hand for any questions. Whatever you opted in, opted out, you get the idea. Now, um, what we see, applying it to theology and specifically our spiritual walk, our walk with God and our, our um, salvation, we see that that free will has to be thought through as it applies to Adam and then to ourselves through, through Christ. I had planned to spend a little more time on this chapter, so we're good. But I'm still going to set this so I can keep track. Okay, Pastor Thomas Boston had what he called a fourfold state description. Um, He described the state of innocence, fallenness, regeneration, and glorification. So innocence would be the garden, right? Fallen would be after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Regenerated is when you become a Christian, you get converted. And then glorified is not until we get to heaven. But that's our next several paragraphs. Section two is basically innocence. Section three is the fallen Nature, the the problem of the fall applied to a person with free will. Section four is then those who are Christians regenerated and the the state and condition of being a regenerate person, how how a Christian operates with your free will. And then section five is the time when we are are glorified. And so um, I'll leave it to you to study further. I just want to introduce the chapter today, but let me say a bit here as we conclude. How do we summarize all this, the, the fourfold state of the free will of man as it operates in the state of innocence and then fall and then conversion and then glorification? So the idea of human will in those four states needs to be set in the context of how the human being changes in those four states. In, the, in a limited sense, we could say there's always free will in even, even in those four categories in the sense that man and woman are not forced from outside of themselves, but rather the will of a person is determined from within. So a person viewed from the volitional perspective, volitional just means your will, your decisions, can never be divorced from man viewed from the moral perspective. So you raised your hand even though you didn't go to the game and you lied. So you decided, it's volitional, but you also sinned. It's a, there's a moral aspect tied to that because you raised your hand and you got counted as one who went to a game, but it wasn't true. So 
for the Westminster pastors, as they describe it in this chapter, it is that which is over against the great error of Pelagian Arminian theologies, um, where entire different systems are created for how to deal with free man, uh, free will of man, and, and those are not squaring with Scripture. So the Westminster pastors have written this chapter to distinguish from uh, other theological systems. So that the, the assumption is that free will means I am free to will things, but I'm also free to will things that are contrary to all of my natural aspirations and desires. In other words, I can decide I'm going to say no to myself. So you see how that is free will. I have a desire that's a bad desire, and then I have a spiritual nature that says no to that desire. Um, and so it will pop up again when we hit the topic of sanctification, for example. So the Westminster Confession of Faith teaching is that since the will of an individual or the volition of, his, of an individual and the moral character of an individual are two aspects, but one reality of one individual, it's impossible that a twisted, perverted, depraved sinner should have a will on their own that would be anything but twisted, perverted, and depraved. We can't save ourselves. So that, that's the key thing. I would leave this chapter as a takeaway, that the, the problem with Arminian theology, the problem with Pelagian theology, is that there's some aspect of it left to the sinner. And if there's any aspect, 1%, one grain aspect left to the sinner, we're not saved because we can't do it. It's not, it has to be 100% God-saving because we are twisted, perverted, and depraved in our, our wills and desires. Okay? Don't worry, it crops up again. We're just flowing this, this uh, all is a logical flow. So we move to chapter 10 on effectual calling, which is um, related. So as we, as we talk now about effectual calling, these are not words we use every day. I don't know how familiar you are with these terms or the way that they describe it. But let's simplify. What do you think of when you hear the word calling? Maybe that helps or to, or to introduce the idea. What is calling? I refer to it as God putting a hit on you. You know how the, the mob says you want to kill this person, you put out a hit? God puts out a hit on you. Of course, it's a positive thing because he wants to save you. And God says to his, um, the Father says to his spirit, go get him. Uh, put a hit on you for salvation. That's calling, that God is calling your soul into his kingdom. So effectual calling, God gets his man or woman, right? That, that you actually do become converted and come into the kingdom. Or, if you don't like that, I'm just trying to introduce the concept, but another way, maybe a fuller definition of effectual calling is an exercise of the almighty and effective power of the Holy Spirit acting directly upon the soul of a person determining him and actually drawing him to Christ by faith, yet in a manner perfectly in harmony with the man's own makeup and essential nature, so that this person comes to Christ most freely, being made willing to come by the superintending work of the Spirit. Is that better? <laughs> you could say, God put a hit on you, and you got it. Uh, Romans 8 is the main verse, Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. I'll read it. Listen for the, the effect the, uh, the 
idea, concept of calling, called. Romans 8, 28, familiar verses, but listen for it. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called, according to his purpose, for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined he also called. Those he called he also justified, those he justified he also glorified. So if, if you were designing a theological statement, you were going to write the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you got a, a blank sheet of paper. You can just write whatever you think is the most important theological things to put down in a doctoral statement that's going to last for hundreds of years. People are going to study. What would you write? I mean, let me ask you this way. What's missing in the Westminster Confession of Faith? Sometimes people come and accuse the Westminster Confession of Faith as not being a sufficient document because it's missing this topic or missing that topic. Can you detect any of those? Sometimes people say it's missing a chapter on regeneration. You know, new birth, people have to be born again. You should have a chapter on being born again, people will say. And our answer is, this is the chapter on new birth. This is the chapter on being born again. It's not missing. This is it. It's just foreign language to us, effectual calling. This is the new birth, okay? Like John 5, 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. John 5, 24 to 26. So, let me read section 1 of chapter 10. Um, so if you want to follow along, I don't think I printed it on your page. It's in, the, it's in the hymnal, or you can just listen. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call, by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone, and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, I told you it would come up again, and by his almighty power determining to them, uh, sorry, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. So you see how this is an outflow of the free will chapter and it's being answered yet more. So here in section one, there's three aspects of one reality called effectual calling, or if you want, the new birth. There's three aspects. One, enlightening the mind, if you saw that. Number two, creating a heart of flesh, which is, it really is meaning a new disposition or stance toward God uh, that is different from what you used to have. Uh, used to be a stony heart toward God, now a fleshy heart toward God. Getting soft, softer heart, you get that concept. And then the third one is renewing the will. So we talked about how the will is free, but the will is bad. We need rescue. This is the rescue. This is God renewing our wills. So the result of the one reality described in those three ways is calling. Someone being drawn to Christ, someone being converted, right? This is the concept. How is that done? We come willingly how, how many of you are here this morning because you're being forced? <laughs> um, 
How many of you came to Christ because you were forced? Right? None of us. We became willing. How did that happen? The work of God on our hearts. So we come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. We see this in uh, um, prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So it's a new heart to replace the old heart. So that, that's the concepts there. Um, section 2, I won't read it, but now the author's are a denying Arminian and semi-Pelagian schemes of foreseen faith. You, you must have uh, wrestled this through yourself or have friends that you're talking to about this. People will say that God looks down the corridors of time and he sees that people will in the future one day trust in him and so therefore he gives them grace and it's backwards. It's God who decides, it's God who elects and he sends his spirit and his word in order to work salvation in those people. However, he can still look down the corridors of time and know all that will happen. And so in, here in section 2, they're describing that difference, and they're saying that we remain appropriately humbled by the truth that we're so far from saving ourselves, we cannot even take credit for responding to God's call in our own strength. That good for me, Out of the thousands of people who went to the Billy Graham crusade, I was one of the 400 who came forward. Good for me. Like taking credit for it somehow. Like why would you be interested? Why did you attend at all? Because God is already doing a work in your heart to make you interested and uh, to have you interested enough to go down front. Right? It's the idea of who has the credit for that. Um, Section 3, they're talking about infants who die. I mean, we have to wrestle with that question theologically if we're going to talk about who is responsible for people being saved. And since none of us are able to hear God's call and respond unless God is enabling us, it's no trouble to think of those people who are not able to physically hear because they're deaf or not able to understand because they just can't handle a sermon or the explanation you're giving one-on-one. They can't understand the gospel because they're so limited. They could still be being called by God. He's God. He could take dust and turn it into Adam. He could take a rib from Adam and make Eve. He could give them life from above. He could take a valley of dry bones, make them rattle together, put skin on them, put life into them, and then save them. He's not without power to save people who can't understand very well. Um, Like in Luke 1.15, we're told, He'd be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. So we've got to think of the categories of what God is able to do. Take somebody who's so severely mentally impaired, they can't understand the basics of the gospel message, they could be saved by the mysterious and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Um, John 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, John 3, 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So who causes born again, who causes birth from above, it's the Spirit of God. So section four is where the Westminster authors are saying there's no vegetables, spiritually speaking. Obviously, there's what we call vegetables, physically speaking, people who can't care for themselves and need all the inputs. But spiritually, they are able to come to the Savior. That's 
a baseline endemic truth of all human beings, that they are able to express faith in, in the Savior. We get to heaven, we get all the details, but this is the, what we know to be true. So, all right, that's chapter 10. How much time I have? Let's, let's start chapter 11 with uh, the time, and then we won't uh, try chapter 12. Now, you would recognize that chapter 11 is signally important, right, in, in, the, in the Reformed churches and since the Reformation. The rallying cry of the Reformation is justification by faith. So here's a chapter on justification. So just ask yourself, apart from church, apart from theology, let's get a handle on this word justification. What do you think of when you hear the word justification? Usually it's a guy goes deer hunting and comes home and doesn't have one. So what he says next is his justification for why. He's a very good hunter, but these were all the factors that led to me not getting... I mean, we think of justification as excusing ourselves, right? That's just how we use it in our common language. So again, we're up against language to try to understand core things of our, our theology. So justification needs a definition. So then you talk to Christians who have been around Reformed churches a little bit, and they'll give you this cute answer, which is true and helpful, but limited. They'll say, justification means it's just as if I've never sinned. Have you heard that one? It's true. It's fine. It's a good way to summarize it if you're starting off to introduce it to people. But I think we need a better, accurate, and precise definition, and we have that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 33. Did I put that on your handout? On page for 11? I should have. Well, you can, you can look it up in your hymnal. Question 33, shorter catechism, question 3. What is justification? How do you like that? It begs the definition. And here's the definition. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he does two things. He pardoneth all our sins and, and, and uh, accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So he pardons and imputes. The things you did wrong, cleansed and gone. We get that. We understand. A lot of our hymns talk about that. We get the concept of I did wrong, it needs to be erased, it needs to be washed. But there's this other part that so few people grasp as a part of justification. It's imputed. Now, you probably have direct deposit. You probably have a bank app on your phone, so you understand imputation. Imputation is I'm going to put it into account. Venmo is I put it into your account, right? So imputation is God put something into my account that I didn't have before. The righteousness of Christ, the way I should have lived, is now downloaded to me. That's part of justification. So it's, the, it's both parts. If you have the idea that justification is simply washing my sins away, you do not have a full and accurate definition of justification. It's washing my sins away, yes, but it's also... I need the righteousness of Christ so that when I stand before God on the judgment seat uh, and being evaluated, it's not simply that my sins are washed away. That brings me back to zero. There's a whole lot of things I should have done. What about those? I get the righteousness of Christ applied to me and now it looks like I'm a superhero. I did all of them. And not only all the the sins are washed away as far as the east is from the west, but all the things I should have done are fully done with amazing fruit because of Christ's righteousness applied to my account. I look like a Christian. I look like Christ. So does that help you with uh, justification? So justification is an act of God's grace in which he pardons our sins and 
gives us, downloads to us, righteousness. So we see that the main verse, the same verse we saw in the previous chapter, Romans 8, 28, again, 28 to 30, and I'll just read the last line from verse 30. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So, um, a couple of caveats or nuances now. It's to impute, not to infuse. Now it sounds like I'm getting really precise, right? You have Catholic friends? (laughs) You need to know this if you're getting down into it with your Catholic friends. Um, To infuse would mean to put righteousness into you. That's not what we're saying. That's not what justification is. To infuse is what your Catholic friends probably believe. Rather, what we're saying, what the Bible says, I believe, is to impute To impute is to declare righteous, to announce officially that a person is righteous with regard to God, God's judgment, God's court, to declare righteous, to consider a person to be righteous. So I'll flesh this out in the time I have left, like a minute. Okay, so Romans 8.33, who justifies? It literally says this, it is God who justifies. So we're clear on that. Can you justify yourself? No, of course not. Can you become good enough to outweigh the bad things you've done? Ah! If you ever hear your friend saying that, stay calm, explain the truth, but you should have an internal reaction that says, you can't do that. No. Uh, justification doesn't mean we will be good or will be made good enough. In fact, it is the sinner who needs to be justified. How does that happen? The sinner is declared just by God himself. In and of ourselves, we would remain... I will stop, believe me. Um, We remain inherently sinful and unworthy. Justification refers to our legal status before God in heaven. Guilty or not guilty before the courtroom of, of God in heaven, we're not guilty. We're saved. We have a name placard at the Lamb's Feast. We have a seat there. It's reserved. But you still messed up this week, didn't you? <laughs> so this is part of how, how it needs to, it needs to all, all work. So where I'll pick up next time is um, imputation versus double imputation. <laughs>